This is Adam Puatic from the CRE podcast. I wanted to talk to you about the episode that you're about to hear. It was recorded just before COVID-19 became the omnipresent pandemic that it is now. This episode was recorded just at the end of February, and then it unfortunately got uh, trapped in our office, which was you know, responsibly shut down, as, as most other offices have done. But the content was trapped in our office. We have managed to free it, and we're going to release it now. It is great content. I want you to enjoy it. But I also want to set the context. This was recorded just before COVID-19 was getting going. And that is why some of the references might seem a little disjointed from the current reality. Enjoy. Welcome to the CRE Podcast. 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Puatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Real Capital Conference. Our next guest is the co-chair of the conference, Leslie Gibson, who is also the CFO of CT REIT. Welcome to the show. Great to Co-chair be here. of the conference first, just happens to be the CFO of <laughs> CT REIT, right? The day job. Yeah, yeah, the day job. <laughs> Leslie, thanks for joining us. As always, we start these podcasts with just a a background on why real estate and how you kind of got into the business. Well, I think like many people, I think I fell into commercial real estate. That is very common, by Uh, the way. No. Very, very common. The the same thing. If if you'd asked me pre-university, you know, what was real estate or commercial real estate, I would have said the person with the sign selling my neighbor's house down the road. Fortunately, after graduation, I started my career with KPMG becoming a card accountant, but didn't want to go into the audit group of the large banks, sorry, brokerage houses and uh, and brokerages where I thought perhaps I'd end up in a sort of windowless room in the background counting things for my three years of articling time. So I ended up in the real estate and mining group at KPMG. That seems to have worked out for me. How long were you there for? I spent about eight and a half years there, but spent half my time in Toronto and half my time in London, England. I spoke a bit of of French, so somehow I got ushered onto a lot of projects with uh, Cadillac Fairview and a bit of a double-edged sword. I think I spent half my time in a boardroom looking into the Eaton Center and probably could have spent my paycheck before the stores opened. But it did give me the opportunity to go across to our London, England office and spent about three and a half years over there in their real estate group, which was fantastic. Fabulous time to be in London when the city was on fire. There was lots of interesting work to do. On top of that, speaking a few languages and want to do some traveling. Plus my time over there, plus a few other travel since. I think I'm up to 57 countries. So oh, that's cool. we, we've made the most of time on both sides of the pond. Once I came back to Canada and to Toronto, I thought that although life as an auditor was fun, it was tried to actually move into the business side of things. And fortunately, I had a client who was doing an IPO and took a job with them at Borealis REIT and mm-hmm. did the IPO for what became Primaris Retail REIT down the, the road after a few name changes. So I did that. And a couple months after we IPO'd, Borealis became owned by Omer. So we became part of the Omer's family. And so 40 of us in Borealis then all of a sudden changed and we all worked at Oxford Properties. Oxford was a fabulous place to spend a few years at. So I was at Oxford Properties for about six years. What were you doing there? All the financial reporting, all the financials, MD&A, that type of stuff for the primarist retail REIT and also for Oxford's reporting up into the Omer's pension fund. Got to cut my teeth doing things like that. But also it was a great place to learn whether it was Financings with a, you know, they have a whole sort of specialized treasury team and the IT teams and the asset management. There are a lot of bright people, many of them who are still work with today, who are co owners in one of the CT REIT properties. So everything has come full circle. But and, uh, and that's working at Omer's or Oxford. I mean, a lot of capital and a lot of moving parts. A I mean, lot they, of zeros. They, they, yeah, a lot of zeros. They seem to be kind of doing a little bit of everything 
and I think all over the world, or at least in many they, places. They were. When I was there, they were primarily domestic, um, but expanded into the U.S. And just as I was leaving at the end of 2010, I had opened up a small office in London, England. So they were definitely foring into the international markets and have really never looked back. And I guess at your position then, you were seeing and had exposure to lots of different had, things. Yeah. I'm assuming, and I'm not, I'm unfamiliar with, I'm more front end, not back end, but you're kind of looking at the books and you're getting to make sure that everything adds up, but understanding why the capital is yep. flowing the way it's flowing. Why we're doing it, different structuring, but you know, you got exposure to every asset class. We bought into hotels, had a multifamily portfolio, office industrial, retail. So it really spanned the whole gamut of everything. And so you got to learn a little bit of everything about what was going on. And at Oxford, the finance and the, the operations, you really worked hand in hand. So you knew what the operational issues were. You knew that part of it because they all linked together at the end of the day. That was a great place to be. But after about six years, the Primaris portfolio had grown from about six assets to 40 and was sort of $3 billion, not half a billion. And I went with a group that spun out of Primaris and we sort of internalized management and left Oxford. And that was a great experience, sort of setting up the shop on our own and becoming sort of a fully standalone REIT. Very Um, entrepreneurial of you. (laughs) After working for large institutions your entire life. Yes. Was that scary? I don't even think I could manage the courage to do that. Well, you know what? For me, I think it was you get to be a, a big fish in a small pond. So, you know, well, you had lots of depth of expertise in one area at Oxford. Moving on to the other shop, you got to do financing, IR, IT, all these other things that there were entire teams and groups of other places. So you just had a different experience and got to learn different things. But after about three years, the Primaris was subject to a hostile takeover. So things changed yet again. The company was effectively split up into two parts, one with H&R REIT and the other one with some of the different funds with Kingset Capital. So I stayed for a couple more years and worked with the great guys at H&R, became the retail arm of the uh, H&R REIT. I got to run the Toronto office for a couple of years. But after that, I decided I wanted to move back into sort of head office and being part of the sort of public company side of things. So spent three years at Choice Properties REIT and got to be on the other side of an acquisition where we were acquiring and work through the acquisition of Crete. But just around that time, the opportunity to move to CT Reed and the CFO role came my way. So I left that organization and joined CT Reed about 15 months ago now. So that is where I am. And so that transition from, let me back up. And if you don't want to answer this question, you don't have to, <laughs> but I, I have to ask it. The hostile takeover, that moment, or what was it like to realize Hostile has got a sort of negative yeah. connotation. Maybe it was maybe it was a friendly takeover. I don't know, but you called it hostile. So let's Barbarians assume it was at the gate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's assume it was something that you maybe that you didn't want to occur, or at least were upset about it or disturbed by it initially. But then you clearly worked through it anyway. You didn't just run out the door and never look back. The deal was not a takeover where it was a negotiated takeover, so it was not friendly at the beginning. I'm obviously the players and the people everyone knows each other. The CFO of Kingshead was my old CFO that I'd worked for at Oxford Properties. So it's a small world, but no, uh, getting that phone call from the CEO to say, you know, we're going to be put in play in the next couple of hours. Press releases are going out by the other side and we've been given a brief heads up, puts you into a different playbook. And so you'd rehearse the playbook, there was stuff on the shelf, but going live on it when that was really the first of a lot of the M&A transaction from a few years ago, we were sort of the first out of the gate and you're a bit of a guinea pig going through it. Whereas by the time we were, you know, a couple of months into it, then another one started with Keyreed and a few other ones, they, they sort of came afterwards. But no, it does not feel good. It does not feel good. But it's really because things are out of your control. It, yeah, uh, it's a you know, lock of it's, control. It's not your plan. It wasn't sort of what the strategic plan and what, you know, you had laid out with the board and what you wanted to do. This was not part of that and plan. clearly it's not personal. And it's not. It's either. flattering maybe. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, if anything. Yeah. 
think of it as we did a good job managing some stuff that they were wanted by more than one group. So a really interesting process that does take over your life for a little while. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I need to do this sort of, you know, every year here and there. You're probably safe at CT REAP. I think I the assume. chances of being taken over are relatively low with CT REAP being 69% owned by Canadian Tire. So again, moving to choice was the same thing. The chance of being the subject of the takeover is just not there. Well, we'll get to CT yeah. REAP quickly. Let's not dwell on the yeah. other stuff. But quickly, I'd like to hear just the experience of the choice and the Crete merger acquisition, however mm-hmm. you want to phrase it, and just what that experience was like. Because I mean, that shook the real estate world in Canada anyway, just because of the mass, the size of the two REITs combining. And what was your role in that? Crete had tons to be admired about. I mean, they have one of the early REITs. They had been around for over 20, 25 years. And if you had asked a number of people when you were IPO and you're working on things, who is your benchmark? Who are you emulating? The name Crete would have come up a number of times, you know, between investor returns, their view about not having to be the biggest, willing to recycle assets, but had provided strong returns to people. And throughout the process, we met a number of shareholders that they had been unit holders since the get-go. So these are people that invest in the company for 20 years and were very sad to see it disappear from the landscape. So working on that, you know, things happen quickly. You know, once you sort of decide we're going after something and make a decision, I think once you've internally made a decision, we want to go there. And that was a little bit different because at that point in time, you know, it was conversations and... It wasn't hostile. It was not hostile. So it was conversations then at that point between, first of all, you know, Galen talking to the executive, to Stephen there and having conversations and looking about what they wanted, what the future was, what they wanted out of the combined entity. You know, and I think the Western family's view of, you know, they've been long investors in real estate and they definitely take a long intergenerational view about investing was definitely aligned with how Crete had run their business for the last 20, 25 years. So... I think there was a lot of alignment between, you know, the sort of the strategies at the top of the house. I think that provided a good foundation for being able to work out a deal. And provided you with a lot of education. I'm sure you learned a ton, but both experiences. No, it was, I think, for the first couple of years after the hostile takeover, that's the first question anybody ever asked, what was it like? You know, <laughs> I'm what sorry did you for do? asking that. I'm sorry you know, no, but because it was, you know, it's unique. I mean, most people in sort of the finance and a lot of roles could go through an entire career and never be on either side of those things whether you're in public or sort of a private environment. So a bit unique, although now looking back, there's been several more. So it's perhaps a little bit less unique, but at the time of it was... Next time you uh, get the question, you can direct them to listen to the podcast instead of... There we go. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, please and thank you. And maybe you can't answer this question, but I mean, would you ever do it as CFO of a CT read if you saw something that you really liked? Like, is it something you don't do or is it an opportunity... If you're opportunistic and there makes sense to do it, it's logical. I think everything has to always be on the table. I think you can be looking at something, you can do a lot of what if, you can do tons of what if modeling, what would it look like, what would it do? It's definitely, you know, depending on the size of it, you know, some M&A could be a couple hundred million dollars. Maybe it's like buying a big portfolio. You know, if it's buying a whole other, when you're talking buying a couple billion dollars, you know, like the Creed acquisition was for choice properties. It really fundamentally changes what the company is, what its strategic direction is, where the growth avenues for the company. So, I think for sure it would be on the table, but it has to be, you know, the right time, the so right the, place. Guys, and, everybody watch and everything out, has, okay? to be, has to be in the right spot. <laughs> That's so. the Gibson is coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a theoretical question then. We're not talking hostile takeovers. If you were to see CT Reed expand out of its core mandate now, what would you see it expand into? I think our core mandate is still pretty broad. We describe right now is we describe ourselves as really Canada's premier triple net REIT lease. Explain what you mean by that triple net lease REIT. So it's really, we're focusing on single tenant assets that really the tenant is looking after the day-to-day maintenance and operation of the properties, whether that is the snow plowing, the landscaping, that would really be the sort of the, the tenant occupying the space would take care of that. The tenant would also be fully responsible for paying the property taxes that go with that property. And so really the net rent that they pay to us is really sort of what we keep, but all the day-to-day operations really flow 100% through the tenant. So it's 
lower management intensive than enclosed shopping centers and some of the other forms of real estate. Are there other triple net lease REITs out there uh, in Canada or maybe globally if you have a Yeah, sense? in Canada, automotive properties REIT would probably fall into a little bit of the same category. But um, not nearly the same scale. No, really. not the same scale and, and definitely perhaps more micro-focused on one asset class. I would quite choice before the acquisition of Crete would have fit more of that scenario. In the U.S., the landscape there for triple net REITs is a whole sector, just as retail or office or, oh, wow. you know, the thing. So there's at least 15 plus 20 triple net REITs, 20-year track records, you know, good growth profiles, $25 billion in assets. So the market in the U.S. for some of the U.S. triple net REITs is just far more developed and, and advanced as, you know, some of the other markets are yeah. farther ahead. Sorry, I took us off track. Adam's question was, Diversification. Out of the core mandate. Yeah. Yes. So from there. The core mandate for us really could span different asset classes. We have about 15% of our assets by GLA or industrial. So the industrial and the distribution centers for Canadian Tire. And then the rest is broadly in the retail sector. But we also have the Canadian Tire head office in Young and Eglinton, which is one of the larger assets in our property that is predominantly an office-based asset. But really the future development is mixed use at the corner of Young and Eglinton. So our future growth wouldn't necessarily be restricted to just single tenant Canadian tires or just retail. I think like everybody, industrial is a great space right now. Pricing is a bit tough to acquire much at right now from the REIT perspective, but our cost of capital is becoming more competitive as days gone by and as our unit prices have increased. So there could be some opportunities there. There definitely could be opportunities in other retail spaces. We've acquired a couple of portfolios of bank branches. So, you know, across the country here and there that again, fit that sort of standalone single tenant building. So we're perhaps it could be a little more agnostic in terms of the asset class, although right now we're primarily focused on assets in Canada. And I know you haven't been in the role for all that long, but you know, how has the, the core mandate grown since inception of CT Read? What was it at inception, I guess would be a better question. Sure. Well, back at the IPO about six years ago, we IPO with about $3 billion of, of market cap. So the portfolio was already quite big for sort of a IPO. It wasn't so typical growth when you have this portfolio that we really sort of surface the value all at once from. But I think in the early years, the growth came from more acquisition of some of the properties that were not part of the initial IPO portfolio. So we have vending of additional assets from Canadian Tire. And perhaps what people hadn't expected as much of is, you know, in the last six years, we've expanded about 50 Canadian Tire stores. So the Canadian Tire stores in amongst themselves weren't overbuilt over time. So as the productivity has grown and the sales are growing at those stores, the Canadian tires wanted to have larger stores in a lot of the markets. So we've done about 50 Canadian tire expansions over the different time. And we've also added more of the industrial properties. So we did a large acquisition of Canadian tires, brand new lead certified built distribution center in Bolton, Ontario, sort of 1.2 million square foot. So bringing some of the industrial assets into the portfolio as well as they're sort of being newly constructed and newly built and operating in some of those other areas. So those are probably some of the earlier days. And then I think what CT is looking for now is we're also growing into investing more outside of the Canadian entire family of companies. So we've acquired two bank branch portfolios of triple net leases, and we'll look to expand other things with, again, the themes of Canadian Tire. We were able to leverage Canadian Tire's relationship into an equity position at Canadian Tire's head office at Young and Eglinton in Toronto. So right now with our co-owner Oxford Properties, we own half of Fabulous Development Site at Young and Eglinton. So we'll be working with Oxford Properties, expanding that part for the multi-use and office components of that property. It's an interesting dynamic because you are, I mean, clearly your own entity with CT REIT, but have a, how do you refer to a sister company or... 
they're not a parent company. But how does that work? And the strategy conversations, because clearly you may say, okay, we want to do, you know, as an example, intensification of this site and build an apartment building. But is that your decision or how does that work as far as just making sure everybody's on the same page? I think one of the nice things is that we really work hand in hand in every day with the Canadian Tire Real Estate team. We sit on the same floor in the office okay, building great. as they do. So you bump into them. And so they're elevator. partners, really. Exactly. So we're partners every day. We sit in their you know, weekly, monthly development and, and meetings and what they want to do. So I think it really provides us insight as to where the growth of the business is. And you know, they're doing store planning and what they want to do, not for 2020, but 21, 22, 23 right now. So we have clear visibility as to where it's growing and from a sales productivity perspective, what stores they want to grow. So, you know, it's provided us a, I would say, a relatively risk-free development pipeline where, you know, we know exactly where they want to be. We can sign a lease with a, a fabulous investment-grade tenant with them. But as far as if we want to do other stuff on the property, again, it's a partnership. We have to work with them. Even though the site might be owned by CT Reed, it's also encumbered by a long-term lease with someone operating a retail store. So, you know, we have to work with them to figure out is this something that the store would have to close? Could we phase the construction work around something if you want to do something different? But definitely a partnership with what the desires of the retail company are going to be, but also recognizing that, you know, we want to continue to have growth and sort of, of continue to maximize the have, values of the properties too. And that's part of our mandate. You have your own shareholders to be accountable yeah, to. Absolutely. Right? So you clearly have to have some sort of voice at the mm-hmm. table. And on that note, there's noise around retail and we can debate whether it's real or not. But I think Canadian Tire is probably insulated quite a bit from fashion and that kind of thing. But this distribution platform you've made mention to some new industrial. Is there growth in that space as far as you know more direct to door, direct to the home sales and that kind of approach to their business? Your uh, business, I should say. Definitely. And we're happy to support Canadian Tire. And I think Canadian Tire has made a huge investment in the delivery to consumer. I think they really want to sell the product to the customers and deliver it however the customer wants, whether that is delivered to home, pick up in store, whether that's coming in and doing it, whatever delivery mechanism, they want to be the one that sells it to them. So they have made a considerable investment in their e-commerce and their digital platforms. Back in Q3, they were talking about, you know, there's 500 million visits to the Canadian Tire Sub website. So it's, it's for Canadians, it's one of the most shopped websites, one of the most trafficked websites. And somehow through their data and their analytics, they will tell us that 70% of their sales have some kind of digital origination. So whether people have looked the product up, checked stock, checked inventory, and a number of things before they go into the store and you, then actually purchase. You don't just purchase. go to Canadian Tire and wander around. And, and pick up one item. And, or then decide, just ad hoc, I'm going to buy a lawnmower today, right? Like you've yep. decided to buy that lawnmower. You're you've done the research. Yep. You're going there to get that lawnmower. You might buy something small, but that's not necessarily the purpose for a Canadian yep. Tire trip. Let's kind of meander over into like geography and just the approach. I mean, Canadian Tire is clearly domestic. It's clearly a Canadian yeah. company. But is there a strategy? Because I, I get the sense often, or maybe I'm wrong, but secondary markets is a mm-hmm. strong component of your portfolio. You could be one of the biggest retailers in a lot of those small markets. We are. Definitely between some markets that have Mark's Work Warehouse, that have a sport check, that have a Canadian Tire. I mean, that's a huge amount of the retail presence and a big part of the, of the community, really. So you know, we have just over half of our portfolio is what we describe in secondary markets. Those markets perform really well for Canadian Tire. So if you're in London, Ontario, or if you're in some of those mid-sized markets, Canadian Tire is in multiple places. And in smaller ones, they really form part of the fabric of the community. So having been around for almost 100 years, you know, it's generations of people that come and go and the brand recognition and the consistency is easy for us. For us, some of the secondary properties or secondary markets we're really happy owning the Canadian Tire in the secondary markets. You mentioned sort of fashion retailers. I think if you're the fashion retailer in a secondary market, that would be less interesting investment. But if you're the Canadian Tire anchored in the secondary market, that's a place we're happy to be all day long. And is there a growth strategy for those markets? 
to continue I, to expand, presumably? The growth for us in those secondary markets is through the Canadian tires, really the stores and their productivity and the growth over time that they've not having over been overbuilt. So there is a regular pipeline of stores that they would like to increase. And sometimes if at one location, the store cannot be expanded or it's just too small or the configuration doesn't work, we'll partner with them to find a new site and to find somewhere else so that we might be losing a building, but we're going to partner with them and finding their new location for their new larger store. And then we'll try to repurpose the old store or sell it or do something else with that real estate once they're done. And do you have uh, population minimums for new markets? You know what? I will leave some of that in the store planning to our friends at Canadian Tire. <laughs> but once they've decided to be somewhere, then we'll partner with them to find sure. the best location and whether they can do it with us or they still find locations with other people too. They still have a quarter of their stores that are owned by other landlords, be it private and some of our REIT peers. They're definitely looking for the best location. And a lot of times that could be with us, but sometimes it could be with other people too. And that's fine too. I like the collegial atmosphere. No hostile in your <laughs> Yeah, it's very good. One thing we've not talked about that Aaron and I love talking about is debt because it's super interesting the entire listener base, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> we just lost three quarters of the listeners. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> but you use a mixture of property and unsecured debt. Is that yeah, what is the financing strategy? Well, for us, when you sort of IPO with a multi-billion dollar portfolio on day one and really have the benefit of leveraging a investment grade credit rating with two rating agencies, really at IPO, there was really only debt to Canadian Tire, what we call class C's. And so really it was like a preferred fixed rate debt to Canadian Tire. But I think what was done from IPO through the next couple of years is really built a program of unsecured public debentures. So starting at zero and working your way up to just over a billion dollars, we have about a billion dollars now in unsecured debt that trades in the market and wanted to get up to a certain amount of liquidity. And as the portfolio has grown, that was one of the goals to leverage that market with that market really being simple to access, the rate competitiveness, et cetera, has been a great spot for us. And that's really where most of our debt is. We do have a very, very small sliver. So like 2% of our debt is property level debt. Sometimes that's acquired when we bought a property or you know, with a partner, we're looking at something there. But really the unsecured has been the market that we have focused on. What is the motivation to take that strategy? I think ease of execution. We structured the balance sheet and the operations of Canadian Tire right from the get-go in a way that had you know a reasonable amount of leverage, had good credit ratings. And so all the covenants that a sort of investment grade debt holder would be looking for is sort of what was definitely in the mind of when the balance sheet was actually constructed and sort of the whole thesis for how it's been operated. So, you know, between being price competitive and the ease of being able to develop assets, et cetera, without having to go back to a secured lender has been probably the primary focus. But we do have other bits and pieces and we keep an eye on the other markets. There's been definitely the odd time here and there where the secured market, the pricing may be inside of what the ventures may be. But between ease of execution and oh, cost, flexibility, the flexibility, the, yeah. those are really probably the, the key ones. Don't worry, we can take it. We understand. All right. <laughs> Don't be gentle. We're big boys. It's okay. <laughs> you can't see it on the podcast, but Aaron is crying right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A little bit of me just died. Yeah. <laughs> If we can get back to your role as a co-chair, we mentioned at the start of the show, you're the co-chair of the Real Capital Conference. We are now midway through the day. We've done mm-hmm. the morning sessions. You know, what was your big takeaway from the morning that either brightened your day or uh, added a little gloom? I'll say a bit of both. I think it was the, a mixed bag. It was a mixed bag on two fronts. I think the theme of the ESG has come to North America sort of like a bit of a tidal wave in the last six, 12 months before it was talked about. But I think the game has been upped. And I think there are definitely people that are farther down the path than others. But I think the ESG theme about being able to articulate things, being able to look at your portfolio, but perhaps a bit of the doom and gloom when you really think it is coming at you quite quickly and the catastrophes that could be in front of us. But I think it's also an opportunity to people to look at their portfolios and to have a chance to find out where the risk is and how to mitigate things and 
take other things in consideration when you're building and you're looking for new site selection and a whole host of things. And I think it's the existing stock, the new things. There's going to be more things people are looking about and talking about. And there's lots of programs that have had good financial return and certain sort of low-hanging piece of fruit. But I think it's going deeper than that is what people are going to be expecting going forward. And it will become the baseline. And I think we've got a little bit of work to do to perhaps catch up to Europe and other places, but we'll do it. We'll get there. I appreciate the insight into the morning session. It's unfortunate we didn't catch you at the end of the day after the the closing panel, because I guess your next responsibility as co-chair will be in a few hours after the closing panel. But we do appreciate talking in the morning. We appreciate uh, your time today. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Great. Thanks for being here. We want to thank Informa for hosting us here at the Real Capital Conference. And we want to thank First National for powering us. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.